Let me tell you about two men. The first has climbed nearly every single mountain in the Himalayas. He's obsessed with mountaineering. He's endured broken bones and broken relationships. Eventually, he fulfills his lifetime ambition of climbing Everest. He has a framed picture of himself at the summit. The second man has been overweight all of his life. He eats crap food and he drinks a lot. He's obsessed with enjoying himself. He's endured bad health and broken relationships. Eventually, he fulfills his lifetime ambition of becoming a plus-size model. What do you think of this man? Cream cakes or CrossFit? Ketamine or Kilimanjaro? It might sound like odd questions, but we've become increasingly polarised in what we do to ourselves. Most of us are getting even fatter, whilst others are getting even fitter. This polarisation extends from behaviour to the judgments we make about those behaviours. We chastise those who are fat while celebrating those who are fit. I'm Paul Dolan, a professor of behavioural science at London School of Economics, and this is a Duck Rabbit podcast. I've spent years researching happiness, and I've written two best-selling books about it. In Happy Ever After, I show how social narratives about how to live can powerfully shape our lives and the harsh ways in which we judge other people. Now I'm interested in whether our polarised culture is actually making us miserable. I want to find a way towards a greater acceptance of difference. Today, I want to look at how we are judged for what we do to ourselves. I'm going to be speaking to two very different people. One is Bruce Sturgill. He set up a website to help larger men. The other is the endurance runner, Nick Butter. He's the first and only person to run a marathon in every single country in the world. What do you make of these two? How do you judge them? Is one better than the other? Once again, I'll be joined by my old mate Rory Sutherland. He's vice chair of Ogilvy, a big advertising agency. And he knows a thing or two about consumer behaviour. He puts into practice the kind of research that academics like me generate. Rory, hello, mate. Oh, it's great to be back. It's fantastic to have you back. You and I are pretty different in a whole host of ways, aren't we? Not only in relation to our backgrounds, but also our waistlines too, right? I've weight trained about five times a week, literally without foul, for 20 years. And what have you done? You've trained to increase your weight. Does it bother you that I'm fit and you're fat? Yeah. I mean, uh, th- there's a really important distinction there between being morbidly obese, which in the past I have been, and uh, simply being overweight. And I would argue I'm content to be overweight. I'm not content to be morbidly obese. But I've never, I've never really derived much of my personal identity from being some sort of a donis. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say that that's probably made you happier. Anyway, listen, back to our question. Do we judge what people do with their bodies and in what ways? And we got some uh, feedback on this from our WhatsApp group. Ranulph Fines, who's an explorer, he's in his late 70s and he's got a really small child um, and he insists on doing like these long ultramarathons and climbing mountains and things, even though he's really old and he's had a couple of heart attacks. And I really judge him for that. If you've got a small child who's like a dependent, maybe you shouldn't do that. Is a functioning coke addict who looks after their family well better than someone who endangers their life all the time with disregard to their family or something. A lot of this, you know, judging what people do with their bodies is about attaining an individual kind of perfection in your body. And that's why we hate people who eat queen cakes and we love people who do CrossFit or something like that, right? I think we judge people that are overweight pretty harshly in the UK. Uh, I think they come in for really a lot of unfair criticism, saying things like they're selfish, 
they cause problems for the NHS, they're not fit for work. And I think they must get discriminated against. There's no two ways about it. I'm going to allow you to speak first on that, Roy. What do you make of all of that? See, I was, there was me thinking I was a better person than you, and now I'm not so sure. I think the level of discrimination at the employment level, you know, if we're talking about unconscious bias, almost certainly exists. It is interesting in that some people regard it as perfectly acceptable to conflate weight with self-discipline. There's also probably an assumption which nobody mentions, which is if you're an overweight bloke, people tend to assume you're a massive boozer which may or may not be true. I drink actually very, very little. And yet there are those conflations that go on, which undoubtedly can be extremely unfair. There's no doubt, Rory, is there, that people are discriminated against for being fat. There's, um, there's this really interesting Swedish study where they created fake CVs with photos attached and they sent them out to their prospective employers. And the researchers basically duplicated all the CVs, changing only the photos so the candidates were made to look fatter in one set. And applicants with the seemingly obese faces were about 8% less likely to be called for interviews than their thinner face counterparts. So it does raise the question about where that discrimination comes from and particularly our reasons about why we justify it. I always love this reason that and I think you sort of touched on it a bit as well, is the idea that they cost the NHS a load of money. You see all these headlines, don't you, about obesity costing the NHS a fortune, that all these fat people at the taxpayers expense, six billion quid a year and so on. But you always have to wonder compared to what, right? It's really interesting, isn't it? You hear this narrative around fat people costing a fortune, whilst at the same time, we've got these issues of social care and nursing nursing home costs and pensions. I mean, you can't have two problems simultaneously. Either, either one is bad or the other one is worse. And so I find it fascinating that we kind of do this. And, and so it sort of leads me to then think, well, and oh, actually, by the way, it's worth saying, as, as you know only too well, that if we cared only about exchequer costs, then we'd be actively encouraging smoking for exactly the pension reasons, right? So smokers are beautiful because they die at a perfect age before they claim their pensions. They die relatively quickly and cheaply. So let's get everyone smoking. So I guess if it's not about cost, what else is it about? Hi, Paul. How are you? Yeah, I'm very, very well, thank you. Listen, thank you so much for finding the time to speak to me. Absolutely. Happy to chat. That's Bruce Sturgill. He's a plus-size model in the U.S., and he set up the Chubster website to promote better body acceptance for men. I wanted to find out what motivated him to do this. I started Chubster about 10 years ago. Basically, it was out of frustration. Uh, I lived in the Midwest, United States at the time, and uh, I would go into the mall, and I would usually leave empty-handed because I was kind of at that line where sometimes I could find things that were in my size and sometimes I couldn't. And uh, it was just a bad experience. And I would leave and then I would go to the big and tall shops and they were carrying things that were more geared toward someone my father's age. So mm -hmm. I was frustrated by the entire experience and I did what everybody does these days and got on the internet to complain about it. So <laughs> I started a, a blog on Tumblr and um, called out the brands that were making it difficult to find their extended size products on their websites and, and just kind of shared resources. I was sharing the, uh, the clothes that I was finding, where I was finding them, looks that I put together. And uh, to my surprise, a community grew around that. Nice. So that was a decade ago. Um, have you noticed any changes during that time either in like attitudes towards bigger people or um just anything really you know generally over the last decade 
You know, it has really changed uh, quite a bit. I think there are still a lot of steps to take to to get to where we need to go. But when I started this, when I would reach out to companies to ask them about their uh, extended size offerings or to ask them if they had even considered doing something like that, nobody would give me the time of day. They weren't talking to me. They weren't uh, uh, really willing to connect. And uh, you know, over over the years, especially in the last five or six years, I've really seen things kind of come around and I've seen that there's a lot more interest and a lot more discussion around what it is to be a bigger person in today's society. In the past few years, I mean, even I've started uh, uh, modeling for different companies from Columbia Sportswear to uh, Bonobos to uh, DXL. Check you out. Check you out. <laughs> it's, that it was an interesting <laughs> byproduct of of doing all of this. So it's it's been really interesting and fun by the yes, sound of it. Yes, yes, a lot of fun. You love it, don't you? You love it. I can tell. Definitely. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not love modeling. <laughs> yeah, no, it, no. It's interesting that gender difference, though. It is like you said about your clothes for your clothes for your dad. Is that is there not? Do you think there's still the perception that if you're if you're larger, you don't really? I mean, there's no point wearing anything that looks nice in a sense, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that is, that is slowly changing. You know, when I would go to those big and tall shops 10 years ago, they were featuring, uh, models that were, you know, 20 years older than me that, uh, you know, you'd see the ex football player. So you'd see the very tall guy, uh, but you wouldn't see, I'm short and wide. You weren't seeing short and wide <laughs> models. And there was this idea that, uh, that, customers didn't want to see themselves reflected in the marketing or in the catalogs that these that these shops put out. And that has really right. started to change as they're seeing that there's a lot more buying power with the younger audience that wants style. They're looking for bottom line clothes that are the the same things they're seeing in the mainstream, that they're seeing, you know, mainstream sizes wearing. They want those kind of things in their sizes. If we fast forward another 10 years, are we in a different place in terms of how people view bigger people? Where do you think we're heading in terms of our social social attitudes around these issues? I think it is continuing to change. I, I do think that uh, being a fat person or a bigger person, whatever you want to call it, so many so many different identifiers for so many different people. Actually, can I just interrupt you there? Can I call sure. you fat? Is that okay? I mean, is that, I mean, I'm just really interested. I don't mean you, you know, personally, but is, is fat for you an acceptable term? For me, yes, it is. It's so, you know, it's something that I've certainly come to terms with over the years. And I think that uh, for a lot of people, it is. It's it's this word that uh, has always had some kind of power and it's always had this kind of negative connotation over the years. And it's something that uh, for me, it's a descriptor. And I don't think it really matters much more than that. I don't uh, necessarily look at it as a as a negative. You know, I identify as uh, I'm a fat guy. So that's, you know, that's how it is. And it doesn't uh, that doesn't it doesn't bother me again to sort of just be a bit provocative, I guess. Um, how would you say to would you say to someone who said, well, of course, you'd obviously rather be thin, though, wouldn't you? Uh, you know, that's not that's not the way that I that I look at it. I don't think that my life would be uh, significantly better because if I were thin, you know, if I were a smaller size, uh, you know, living a great life as a fat person, it's not promoting obesity. And it's just like living a great life as a thin person doesn't promote diet culture. So, you know, yeah. it's it's just one of those things that. Uh, 
it's just unrelated. And I think that there are lots of different uh, uh, bigger people or lots of different fat people who are out there living great lives, doing lots of things, being active, and they're happy with their lives. And, you know, I know for me personally, I don't wake up every morning uh, looking in the mirror, uh, you know, feeling sad about the way that I look. I love my body. I'm happy with the way that I look. And I'm happy that I'm able to get out there and do things and, you know, live my life. Fantastic, Bruce. Listen, thank you. I'm I'm happy that you're happy, and I'm very happy that you've taken the time to speak to me. Thank you very much. Rory, what do you make of Bruce? I think he's doing something very necessary. I mean, it's worth making the point, and I know this from talking to doctors, that there is a category of person who's kind of fit and fat. So they are overweight, but it ha- it doesn't reflect in high blood pressure or anything else. And actually, those people can be fairly active and actually are fairly healthy. So the correlation between weight and uh, health is there, but it doesn't apply to everybody. That's the first point to make. And he made that point. There are lots of overweight people out there who are actually leading perfectly healthy and enjoyable lives. Yeah, you know, so it's only been over the last couple of decades or so um, that we've changed what is classified as overweight from being a BMI of 27 to 25. Um, And actually between BMI of 25 and 27, there's absolutely no increased risk of any adverse health outcomes. But all it's done, I think, um, is enable there to be a much bigger market (laughs) for pharmaceutical companies when they come along with their fat busting drugs. What you're doing essentially is you're just redefining the problem to make it seem larger than it is, which I think happens quite a lot of the time, to be honest. Right, anyway, listen, we need to hear from somebody else now, Rory. And I had a chat yesterday with Nick Butter. He has written a fantastic book called Running the World. And it does exactly what it says on the tin. He literally ran the world. He ran a marathon in every single country in the world. Running for me kind of happened as a an accidental therapy from normal life and, and, and work and then kind of got better at running. And then I eventually ended up in a situation where I was running out in the Sahara desert with a bunch of people I'd never met. One of those was a guy called Kevin and very sadly he had terminal prostate cancer. And then that was the kind of the, the shove over the edge into the, into the unknown that I needed because he said this magical phrase to me, which was don't wait for a diagnosis. And and what he was trying to you know make the point being is that life is very short and precious and don't wait for something negative to happen in your life to make a change. And, and amazingly he was the, the kick I needed. And I, I then realized I wanted to do something that was exactly as he described, you know, I wanted to meet people. I wanted to travel. I wanted to take photos. I wanted to run, of course. And so I then Googled it and nobody had run a marathon in every country in the world. And I guess now a few years later, I have. Why every country? Was that because you like you had to find something that no one else had done? Well, no, actually, it started off as I wanted to do something to raise money for Prostate Cancer UK. And therefore, I wanted something to be big enough. And because I wasn't as well known, I needed to... I needed to do something with long, like in, long in duration. You know, it needed right. to be something that was going to capture the hearts and minds of people over a period of time. There's no point in me doing something, no matter how crazy, over a short period because it wouldn't have raised the money. Right. Um, 
And then I wanted it to be global. And so I maybe thought, you know, seven continents or something. And, you know, a random Google just brought up that nobody had ran a marathon in every country. And at that time, I, I honestly thought, why? Like, why on earth? Because surely that has to be. We put people on the moon. Let's yeah, let's yeah. try and make that happen. And I, I now know why nobody had done it. It's very, very difficult. Um, but I guess, yeah, I guess that was the reason. Uh, you know, doing something that nobody ever done was, was definitely a, a tick in the box. And I feel I'm really, really proud of the, the team and everybody I had around me and, and my parents as well to be able to to get me to the finish line so given that given that we've established that you're clearly fucking mad um what are you doing next <laughs> what am i doing next oh gosh honestly there's loads because of- you can't have um, finished can you come on because you know you're gonna have to do more no exactly i've had my feet up for too long i mean i've just finished running uh, i just finished running north to south of italy uh so that was 100 marathons in 100 days and now i'm i'm just about to uh set off for a run around britain actually which you're the first people i've spoken to to tell because we're going to be announcing it in the next couple of days so nobody else knows this yet Amazing. Um, but i'm just just about to run uh yeah it's going to be double marathons um so 200 marathons in in 100 days uh, around the country that's the idea anyway <laughs> um, yeah, see. i don't know what to say I, I mean i wish i wish you could see my face because my jaws just dropped um yeah. <laughs> I, it, it like where does it end well hopefully it doesn't uh i'm pretty keen on uh on keeping going you know having uh, effectively running the world became a, a scouting mission you know i ran a marathon in all these countries and i discovered cities that i loved countries that i loved communities races religions people that i connected with and now i want to spend the rest of my life kind of running north to south circumnavigating places that i enjoy being in and I guess there's there's three elements to what the team and I kind of believe is our way forward. It's number one is adventure, number two is uh, community, and number three is uh, environment. And so if we can do some good for the environment and support communities around the world, then we'll hopefully reach our goal of having some adventure and doing good. Do you look down on the rest of us a uh, little bit? <laughs> no, not at all. No, I... I uh, the honest answer and let's try and evoke some answers that you're not expecting is i suppose the people that i maybe respect less are the people that don't give their life the full potential a chance you know the full potential they have i don't you know i I feel like i want to shake people and go like you can't keep saying no to stuff you can't keep making excuses while you're not following your dreams you know whether whether that dream may be to spend 10 more minutes a day with your family people make excuses for stuff and so i can be quite harsh in to some uh, communities of people because i want to shape people to to just to follow their dreams because we are we have this enormous privilege and it's not just a privilege but it is a responsibility to the rest of the world that don't have these opportunities to to just fulfill our dreams to the maximum and we only have this this finite time and i i hope that i'm doing my life justice and and i think that's come from this conversation with kevin out in the desert and it's just snowballed from there listen thank you so much and i'm really privileged to be able to be the first you're telling you're going to do all these marathons around the uk can i just suggest you don't try doing 400 in 100 days um (laughs) just you know just as just as a tip i mean i don't know if you want to well, now, that, you've, but... now you've suggested I shouldn't, but maybe I should. No, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Thank you so much. So there you go, Rory. Would you like to be Nick? A couple hundred marathons in 100 days? The even stranger person is the person diagnosed with terminal cancer who chooses to spend his last remaining time on Earth <laughs> running through the Sahara Desert, which was exactly the kind of life that most of our ancestors desperately hoped to avoid. Nick is a 
representation of that extreme effort keep going more and more and more and more. I wonder why we don't judge that as harshly as we do in addiction to cocaine or cigarettes or we alcohol. We certainly don't know whether it's really good for you to pursue something at that level. I mean, the great irony back at Ogilvy, where I work, was that our health insurance costs went up because there was a fanatical jogger who actually basically got so addicted to running, he started to have heart disorders and needed fairly expensive treatment. And so the irony was that the healthiest person in the building, and bear in mind this was an ad agency in the 1990s, the the one health freak in the building uh, was the person who actually drove up our insurance costs. Mad. Anyway, listen, look, as you know, Rory, we've been... um doing some surveys throughout all of this and finding out what the public thinks. And thanks to B. Andrew, who's one of our amazing new EMSC behavioural science students, uh, we've got some results. And I want to <laughs> I want to see what you make of this, right? So we asked people to make various comparisons between recreational drug use on the one hand and mountaineering on the other. So we asked them who they thought had the best time, the recreational drug user or the mountaineer. And more people thought the mountaineer did than the recreational drug user, 60-40. Do you think mountaineers actually really have a good time? It's probably fair to say that, yes, that there must be some sort of addiction uh, involved and that addictions are in some way enjoyable, of course. It's interesting because we chose the word recreational drug use, right? We didn't say addicted, whereas mountaineers, and we didn't say people that go climbing, right? Because that would be analogous to the recreational drug use. The drug addict would be equivalent to the mountaineer, I think. Because mountaineers are addicted. They require whatever that validation and the hit that they get. There's been lots of books written about it, and I, and I don't claim to be any expert in it, and then people can read more widely if they're interested in it. But, you know, there is something almost pathological about the need to keep putting your life at such considerable risk in order to achieve another mountain. What's really interesting, again, in that is that so many mountaineers, when they come off the mountain, having done a climb where they nearly died, will say never again. Don't ever, ever let me go up a mountain. And then, then two weeks later, they're, they're, they're um, up one again. So I just wonder why, if it is an addiction, which it almost certainly is, mountaineering, I mean, and why is it still judged to be something that would be better in some sense? And it's also in the third question, we ask people which one they would prefer. And again, most of our sample prefer mountaineering to recreational drug use. I find that fascinating. I find I find it bizarre, frankly. I think it's very similar, actually, and it's very close to those Jonathan Haidt experiments around moral foundations, um, that when people say fat people are bad because they cost the NHS money, that's really a post-rationalisation of an emotional predisposition. You know, they want to feel they can patronise fat people and therefore they need a kind of excuse to blame them. And I think... I think we're in territory here where drug use is bad and mountaineering is good, where it is very, very difficult to come up with rational explanations for why we think mountaineering is so much better of the two. You know, our reaction here is instinctive and it's unconscious. And we're really casting around for explanations here, aren't we? Well, no, listen, I think that's I don't think we're casting around at all with this one, actually. I think I think I think you've hit on something that's um, substantiable by good evidence. Uh, you mentioned Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor of uh, social psychology in the US. And he has this beautifully captured in his paper titled The Emotional Towel Wagging the Rational Dog. And I think you're absolutely right. What we do is we see we see a fat person or we see a mountaineer or we uh, whatever it is. 
and we immediately make a system one reaction, which is an old evolved reptilian brain, emotional, automatic, fast and unconscious reaction to what we're presented with. And we then look for system two, the more deliberative, more recent part of our brain, validation for those initial reactions. So that's why we say we basically don't like fat people because they're lazy and they don't have willpower. You know, that's basically what our system one is saying. And and and, and I imagine even even you, Rory, when you see a fat person eating a cream cake, you're like, that's a bit wrong. You can't, it's almost like you can't help yourself have that system one reaction. And then you're probably right that if someone was um, overweight and I saw them eating something, you know, spectacularly indulgent, I'd be a bit discomforted by it. Yeah, that's probably fair. Because this is where this is where this is leading us, I think, Rory, is that we need to start overcoming those system one reactions and pay more attention to system two deliberations that are based on good evidence and good consequences. So when we think about the recreational drug use versus the mountaineer, I mean, is there really any more additional social value in the 4,000th person climbing Everest? I don't know if you've come across this new book by Edwin Gow. He's an emeritus professor of clinical sciences at the University of Bristol. But he's literally blown me away. Um, the book's called The Species That Changed Itself, How Prosperity Reshapes Humanity. <laughs> His ideas really are fucking mind-blowing. I think partly because they're obvious, right? So he makes the really obvious point that we adapt our environments and that we adapt to our environments. Yeah. So what we've basically done is we've reshaped the human phenotype such that obesity is no longer a disease, but rather the new normal. So, you know, just as we've got taller over time, we've now changed the phenotype so that we're fatter, so that obesity is with us. And to see it as a disease is a complete mistake. Well, that has just blown my mind. I mean, I don't know what you make of that. In some ways, given the evolutionary environment, it's weird that we aren't fatter than we are. Of course, the idea that it's a bad thing is relatively recent as well. I'd also say, which I don't like saying, because I don't want people to treat this as an example, that I'm probably happier when I'm mildly overweight than I am when I'm thin. Yeah. Uh, or at least, you know, my emotional state is slightly stabilised. All right. Well, that's been another tour de force. Paul, it's been a huge pleasure. Thanks again, Rory. I've still got a few unanswered questions about all of this. Once again, I think it'd be helpful to talk to someone who's done some serious academic research in this area. So before jumping to any conclusions, I'm going to speak to my colleague at the LSE, Dr. Yet Sanders. She's an experimental psychologist, and she's conducted randomized controlled trials in the lab and in the field to improve health and well-being on a population level. Hi. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So when we think about the policy interventions that are designed to reduce obesity, are you aware of any that actually work? I ask that question because... From the epidemiological data, it looks like about 95 to 99% of people put the weight back on again once it's lost. When I was working for public health events, we looked a lot at population level interventions, like changing right. the environment around. You do see that, uh, you know, let's say your supermarket becomes healthier, that uh, we actually see that a lot more stuff is being thrown away. So people might buy more fruits and vegetables, but they're much more likely to throw it away. So you're actually just increasing waste. And that also the corner shop gets more visits. So people might just still be buying their sugar. And that's very difficult to account for in the interventions that I was part of. It reminds me of, of a story of when I was in the cabinet office a decade or more ago when a 
policy want came in was very excited about having seen a study that showed that if you make the fruit and veg bit of a supermarket trolley bigger label it fruit and veg people buy more fruit and veg and so my first question was do they do they eat it because um, of course no one's ever seen a mars bar rot but no one knows when to eat a pear <laughs> uh, and uh but the fundamental question that follows from that is actually if people do buy more fruit and veg and if they do eat it what compensating behaviors might they engage in yeah. following that and as a first order question we don't actually know whether the increased consumption of fruit and veg has led to weight loss, weight gain, or no change. Um, and it's rather odd that if our outcome is obesity and weight, that we haven't looked more directly at that. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right about that. I think usually the evaluation of these sorts of interventions, at least from the ones that I've seen seen being evaluated, are always like approximating the actual weight loss, right? They're just they're just measuring what people might buy or they're measuring what people might enjoy better. Or a, a lot of these interventions are measured through click rates uh, right. as opposed to anything else. I just wonder also about the mental health and well-being effects of interventions that are essentially designed to make people feel guilty or shame around being obese. Why do you think we haven't properly accounted for the psychological costs of these interventions? I mean, I think it's a killer question, Paul. And honestly, one of the reasons that I ended up leaving public housing is because I could see exactly that problem is that that well-being was not being accounted for, that it was not a holistic perspective that people were taking on the effects of different types of interventions. And I think the obesity strategy is a really important part of that. I think there seems to be an assumption that, that uh, because if people would lose weight, they would therefore be uh, healthier and therefore would be happier uh, that that's a sort of logical step without ever actually accounting for the for the for the step-by-step components that that requires uh, and I certainly haven't ever seen any evaluations or discussion even about uh, the effects on well-being under those circumstances and mostly the negative side effects of uh, uh, imposing these sorts of interventions on reducing weight. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, we know from the behavioural sciences is that we, we, we almost sort of laugh at people being subject to all these biases and heuristics that we sort of mock ourselves for being stupid. But we're we're not that stupid. If we're getting the feedback that something doesn't feel good, we probably stop. And if we're not getting the feedback, then we won't. And I think that's part of the reason we don't see obesity taken that seriously by individuals is because they're not getting the feedback that this is making them feel bad. Um, and as I say, there's a very weak association between happiness and weight. And just to say something else on the weight loss thing is that if 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 you've got two people, both of whom are 80 kilos, say, if one has previously been obese, they would require fewer calories to maintain that weight than the person who's never been obese because there's a physiological change. So it's even harder <laughs> once you've been fat to lose the weight and to keep it off, even from a physiological mm. point of view let alone a psychological one. Um, so if we're going to try and move on from these judgments that we that we might make, what do you think we could do? What would be the steps that we could take that would make us a little less judgmental, I suppose, of, of people who don't live according to the ideals that we set for themselves or our own selves? I mean, it seems to me that we, we can still make changes in context, but just not make it any one person's individual responsibility to lose weight. I mean, it seems to be that that the responsibility should be shifted, not from the individual, but to the to the organizations. I mean, people have spoken about the sugar tax, for example. I mean, doesn't seem like a very bad idea to me. You know, at least it doesn't uh, um, or at least as long as it doesn't have an impact on 
uh, individual bank accounts that you would tax the organisation as opposed to the individual. So let's move to the other behaviours then. We talked about the sort of bad health behaviours, I suppose, but the ones that we judge as being good. I spoke to somebody who had run a marathon in every country in the world. I mean, he'd been shot at, he'd broken bones, and he's coming back to the UK to run 200 marathons in 100 days. Why do we hold up these crazy people in such high regard? I mean, he's clearly pathological, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's clearly pathological. I mean, he's also costing you just a lot of money, right? Surely. If, uh... Well, he's probably got sponsorship and stuff, <laughs> so it's probably, it's probably going to be all right with that. But yeah, I mean, just take it to people who actually experience injuries from playing sport or something, I guess. They sort of cost you NHS money. We don't seem to mind so much about that. No, we seem to have much more positive associations with people who put their body under duress in that direction as opposed to putting your body under duress for enjoying good food. I mean, it's. Uh, why do you think that is the case? Once upon a time, there would have been some evolutionary advantage in people being explorers and mountaineers and going off and running and doing these things and, you know, climbing Everest for the first time or whatever. It's just questionable once 4,000 people have done it, whether there's any added social value to it. Mm. So I think we kind of are catching up with ourselves that some of what we would have judged to be good because it had evolutionary advantage is no longer good in a sense. So I think that's part of the issue. I yeah, I mean, it, well, it's, it seems to me like it's the narrative, right? I mean, if you, if you think about how much we adore like people who perform in the Olympics for their abilities, like striving towards that is, is something that is set out so much more strongly than, I mean, I've never seen anybody, oh, I guess there are some sports that strive to gain weight in very specific ways, but mm -hmm. very, very little in terms of, you know, an award for enjoying life the most or anything like that, I think. Usually that's not rewarded in any way. Now, I think it's a really interesting example of if only we would be able to measure it better, would we be able to make much better informed choices about where we should head in terms of our policy interventions. And I think in preventative healthcare, that's happening way too little right now. So I'm totally with you. I think it's pretty clear that healthism has taken hold. The responsibility for health has now been placed firmly in the hands of the individual. We've become ever more obsessed with physical health and look scornfully at those who put their health at risk, even though we may know nothing about their preferences or about their opportunities and constraints. At the same time, we're evolving into a fat species. We're polarised in how we behave and in how we judge those behaviours. You see, I think those judgments come from a social narrative about certain types of good health being good for us. I think these stories, like so many, come from a set of middle-class values. I was a bodybuilder for a bit, and I've been mocked for it. In fact, you're more likely to see rocking all shit than a middle-class person at a bodybuilding competition. I think our path through this polarisation is not so much one of acceptance of difference, as it was with relationships, for example, but rather one of recasting what we pay attention to when we judge what other people do to their bodies and minds. We need to move away from focusing on System 1 reactions to the moral rightness of cream cakes, CrossFit, ketamine, Kilimanjaro, and towards a System 2 evaluation of the consequences of those behaviours. I actually agree with Nick Butter when he said that we should try and be the best versions of ourselves. But interestingly, he used the great example of spending more time with family or friends. I mean, we know that being with people that we like being with makes us feel better. Whatever floats your boat, basically. Our own happiness and the happiness of the people that we care about should be the final arbiter of what is good for us. We must, of course, be alert to the impact that we have on other people. We need to consider all of this in the context that our preferences may differ, as well as our opportunities and constraints. 
you crack on with your tennis or croquet, running, yoga, whatever it is, and let me carry on lifting heavy weights. And we could all do with living a bit more and judging just a bit less. That was the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I'm Paul Dolan, and it was a Mother Come Quickly production. This podcast is part of the Shaping the Post-COVID World initiative at the LSE. Looking ahead, we're going to be discussing social class and whether we can overcome it and whether we even want the class to society. Join me, Rory, and my guests next time. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter at Prof. Paul Dolan.